If you'd have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 9, we will have a reference to 1 Corinthians later in the sermon, so if it's helpful for you to turn there, you can mark that as well. Let me uh, pray for us as we begin. Lord, we are trying to get our minds wrapped around your mind, our thoughts to be your thoughts, our ways to be your ways, but we're so ingrained in old habits, and we're going to really need your help to see the divine definition for greatness and how that works itself out practically in our lives today. So, Lord, as I speak here, I pray that you would take these words and make them divine words to encounter your people here. That they might see something of you and see something of themselves as they leave this place to live lives, great lives, but greatness as you have defined it. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you would know the name of the professional athlete who constantly referred to himself as, I am the greatest. Muhammad Ali, uh, at one point, the most recognized face, I think, on the globe. And he constantly, if you've ever seen any clip from him or if you're old enough to have watched any of his fights, that's what he kept constantly saying. I am the greatest. I am the greatest. And you may have heard about the time that he was on an airplane and the flight attendant sort of quietly came by uh, Mr. Ali and said, uh, you need to put on your seatbelt for takeoff. And Muhammad Ali and sort of his uh, perfect comeback said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And then the poor flight attendant said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Please put on your seatbelt. <laughs> this uh, humble flight attendant helped uh, Muhammad Ali's definition of himself to be re- redefined. He, he had a picture of what was right, and in humility it got redefined. He wasn't quite as great as he thought. And when you enter into a relationship with Christ, remember back in Mark chapter 8, Peter finally declares he is the Christ, he's the risen one, he's the Messiah. When, when you finally enter into that relationship, you're just not entering in and now, and now calling yourself a Christian. You're entering in and you are a disciple. You're not merely holding on to certain beliefs, you're imitating a certain way of life. You're not just proclaiming certain words, you're also walking in the right way. And so we've, we've been talking about, when we've been in Mark, mostly talking about what does it mean to, what, who is it, who do we see when we see Christ? And Peter gets it right. He is the Christ. He, he is the anointed one. And now we're making this transition into, now what does it mean to walk in His way? We're, we're not just calling ourselves Christian. We're, we're walking in a particular direction. You see, when the, when the, the weight of God's glory drops into your life, 
It's like a, a heavy stone that might drop into a glass full of water. When something real drops down into your life, what's not very weighty gets displaced. And when you and I enter into this relationship with Christ, what must happen, I mean, Jesus says it, you must do something, is things that are light and airy about your life, things that you've been holding on to, now get displaced because real glory comes down into your life. And so if your life hasn't been displaced by Christ coming into your life, you would want to ask yourself, has Christ really come into my life? Is, has real weight, has real glory dropped down into my life and displaced out things that I previously thought? Dallas Willard talks about discipleship in his book called The Great Omission. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will actually become disciples or apprentices of Jesus Christ. Will they be steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence? What Willard is saying we see is that there's a big divide in people who call themselves Christians and who are actually disciples. And many of those who call themselves Christians, they don't they don't give any appearance that anything's been displaced in their lives because of Christ. And so we don't want to be like that. We want to live the life of Jesus and, and we want his glory to displace out into our lives. So it goes into every corner of our own existence and we're rearranging what we think and how we live our lives. So we're asking ourselves this question. So what does it look like to be a disciple? Yes, I'm calling myself a, a Christian. I do want to walk in the right way. And what does it mean? And Jesus basically is answering that question in Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10. Again, if you just looked at the titles in your Bible, you'd see we're talking about greatness. We're talking about power. We're talking about money. We're talking about marriage. We're talking about all the things that happen in our lives commonly. How do we look like a disciple in our lives? And Jesus is going to talk to us about it. And here we're going to talk about greatness. And I want, to, want us to notice that Jesus is radically redefining our thoughts. He's not just coming in and sort of tweaking your thoughts like, gosh, without me, you had it mostly right. Let me just come in and sort of tweak your thinking. He's saying you had it totally wrong. And, I'm, and now I've got to radically redefine your idea of marriage or your idea of your money or your idea of greatness. And he does that on a number of issues. Probably the most prominent issue that Jesus addresses in this way has to do with money. Uh, the example that you all would know, Matthew six nineteen: do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying this. He's not saying 
don't lay up treasures for yourself. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, do lay up treasures for yourself. But he's radically redefining what a real treasure is. And so he does want us to be good stewards and he does want us to lay up treasures for ourselves. But we just have to know what that treasure actually is. He redefines it for us in the gospel. And the exact same thing happens in this chapter. Look at verse thirty five. He sat down, he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first or if anybody would desire or determine to be first, anybody want to be first, anybody want to be out front, anybody want to be noticed. And you can imagine all the disciples going now, he's just about ready to talk about something I'm really excited about being first. And they're all leaning in. How do I get to that place? How can I be first place? Okay, let me define that for you. He must. You see, this isn't optional for the Christian. He must be last of all and servant of all. You see, he's not saying don't desire to be great. That is not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, please desire, long for, determine to be great, but great according to my radical redefinition, not according to your definition. And so we know the disciples have this well-defined image of greatness. They have a strong desire for it, and their pursuit of greatness on the worldly level is not subtle. We see it right here. What has Jesus just finished saying before they get this conversation, I'm on my way to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to be buried and I'm going to raise from the dead. In Mark, chapter 10, the next chapter, verse 32, Jesus talks about his death again, right on the heels of him talking about it. You have this request of James and John. Remember this passage? He's talking about his death and James and John get him off to the side and don't try to give him any kind of comfort. They try to say, can we sit at your right and left hand side? Can we be the greatest? Notice they've gotten away from Peter and they want to make sure they get noticed. They want to be the best. And almost the most unbelievable part in Luke chapter 22, Jesus is actually pouring the wine into the cup. And he's explaining that this is the blood that I'm going to have to spill on your behalf. And this argument arose right around the table. And you know what it was about? Who's going to be the greatest? You see, their pursuit, it it, it was so ingrained in them. They wanted to know how they could get up on top, how people could be looking at them. And I'm afraid to say and admit that you and I were no different. We live in a culture that says, go out there and make your mark. Be known for something. Be be first somewhere. You know, even when we walk into this one hour. Even when we would say just for this one hour, we want all eyes focused on Christ. Some of us would have to admit. We want to know if somebody's looking at us. Did anybody notice that I came? Anybody notice the the new thing I had on? uh, The change in my hair? Anybody notice that I lost weight? 
Has anybody noticed that I've gained weight? I mean, you, you just get so consumed. You, even in the one hour we're supposed to be focusing on Christ, you come into this one hour. And you begin to wonder, is anybody looking at me? It gets so ingrained into us. It needs to be redefined. It's not something that needs to be tinkered with. It needs to be something that's just demolished and, and start again. And so we're going to look at this passage in three ways. Jesus redefining greatness here in verse 35. He gives an illustration. Okay, I've said it. Now let me give you an illustration to cement it in. And then I want to ask this question. Um, how does Jesus empower greatness? He's called us to this redefinition. He's given us an example. But how is it that we really are able to live his definition? Well, let's look at the passage here. We see what's happening. They're on their way back from uh, the mountains in the northern part of Israel. They're coming down to Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face on Jerusalem and they've come into Capernaum. This is their hometown right on the Sea of Galilee. And along the way back. They've had this discussion and apparently Jesus is either either a little ahead or a little behind of the disciples and they get to Capernaum. And um, he asked this question, what, what were you guys talking about? Have you ever had this experience that you see a group of people talking and you enter the group and just silence? You get super paranoid about yourself at that moment. And this would happen to me pretty regularly as a young life leader. I'd be trying to meet these high school guys. They're all chit chat. Hey, all right. High five. And I walk in. And, you know, I didn't know what they were talking about. Maybe they were looking at me saying, who's the old guy who can't find friends his own age? I mean, I don't know. But I enter in and suddenly no conversation. What's up, guys? I mean, that's about all you would get. And I think most of the time it's because they were embarrassed of what they were saying. And they just didn't want me to know about it. And so Christ, they've had, the, the disciples, they've had this lively conversation. And Jesus says, well, hey, guys, what are you talking about? You know, Peter wanted to say something. I mean, you know that. But maybe the last two times he stuck his foot so far down in his mouth, he just has decided I'm not going to do that again here. And they're embarrassed. Because here, the great one, the, the real glory has appeared on the earth. And instead of looking at him, they're looking at themselves. How can we be great? And they're embarrassed about that. So Mark tells us that the disciples are stuck on clueless here. They're somehow confused about this whole Jesus being departed kind of thing. And they're arguing about, well, if he's going, however he's going... Who's going to be sort of left in the vacuum? Who, who's going to be large and in charge? I mean, we've got thousands of people following after us. Somebody's got to rise to the top. And that's their concern, concern, consuming concern. And so Jesus gives them his divine definition of greatness. OK, guys, I can see that's a concern. Let me just put that to rest. And he just does it in the simplest, easiest pictures it wouldn't matter what age you are in here. You could pick this up. This is not some deep theological sermon. This is just understanding what Christ has said. And the deep part about it is actually going out and living your life according 
to what he said. If anyone, if anyone would, if anyone is determined to be, if anyone desires to be first, he must be last and servant of all. William Lane in his commentary says this. This is the surprising reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank. This is the surprising reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank. You and I become overly familiar with this term, this terminology. But this would have actually stunned the disciples. They thought all the greatness that they were trying to obtain, now Jesus is saying, that's not worth holding on to. That's air. There's nothing there. What you're reaching out for has no value. And he redirects their reach. And he reverses their idea of greatness. C.S. Lewis does such a great job in his book, The Great Divorce, in trying to give us a picture of what this looks like. Remember, Lewis, go, he's on this bus ride from hell into heaven, and he encounters all these different conversations. And somebody from, from heaven is coming down to meet this person who's gotten off the bus from hell. It's great. You need to read this book. It's really fascinating. And there's all these different encounters. And then he notices some woman that's coming sort of through the forest. And all these people are following after her and all kinds of activity. And Lewis is just stunned by how wonderful this woman is. And he wonders who it is. And his guide says to him, it's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. I mean, just picks the, the most simple name. And Lewis says, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. And the guy says, well, yes, she's one of the great ones. Well, you've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. You see, all the fame, all the things that we think are great down here, it has a totally reversed effect in heaven. So all the great ones, we're just not going to notice down here. Because there's a total role reversal when you've given your life to Christ. He's redefined what it means to be greatness. Again, he's not saying don't pursue greatness. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, please pursue it. But just pursue it in a different location. And he gives us two locations right here in this verse. Location number one. If anyone would be first, here's how you would know. Just to make it as as clear as we can. If anyone wants to be first, the first location is he must be last. I mean, is there confusion on that? I, I, I feel like this is a discussion that I might have with my teenager. When you, they would ask a question and I'd say no. And then they'd start this negotiating process. And I would say, is there anything unclear about no? I mean, there's something else I need to say other than no. Is there, is there some gray in no? I'm just saying no. And Jesus is just trying to take out all the gray. Okay, if you want to be first, it's like he's saying, I understand this is so ingrained. I'm going to have to put it on the, the lowest shelf possible. You have to be last. Is there any confusion? You have any, you know, cloudiness about what last actually means? And I think Paul picks up this idea 
when he speaks to the church at Corinth. First uh, Corinthians four, eight, and nine. Paul is writing to this church who really has a struggle with the idea of human greatness versus divine greatness. You remember right in the beginning of the book that people are some are following Paulus and some are following Peter and some are following Paul. And, and they're sort of just lifting up who are the great ones and we want to be known by them. And then he gets to this part in uh, 1 Corinthians 4. And he's saying to the people in Corinth, already you have all that you want. See, the people in Corinth were saying we should be wealthy and rich and richly supplied right now. If you don't think this is a contemporary text, I just implore you to turn on channel 74. Because this is every every hour. This is it. You should be wealthy right now. You should have your best life right now. Everything should be about you right now. And this is the same church Paul is stepping into in Corinth. And they're saying, we have everything we want. And very sarcastically, I wish we could hear this in the text. Already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings. And without us apostles. Wow. How did that happen, guys? How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. And then he talks about the apostles. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display. Oh, where where are the apostles on display? Because they really are pretty great. Apollos and Peter and Paul. How are those guys being displayed? And Paul says at the very end, read last of the procession. You see, what would happen is once a, a, a conqueror had come and taken over an area, he would bring back all the spoils of the war. And so the leader would be out front and he's riding his horses and, and his soldiers are on horses. And then we have just the, the common people who are going to be enslaved. And then at the very end, you have the leaders, the kings or the rulers that you've just conquered. And they're not only walking behind those who have conquered them, they're walking through all the animal droppings along the way. And Paul is saying, that's where we're on display. And listen to what he says. Not just for men. What does the text say? We're on display for angels as well. Do you hear something about the importance of your location? Not not just me. Not just your neighbor is looking at your location. Angels are peering in to your location and they're learning something about Christ by your location. Everybody's looking at you in that way. And Christ is saying, I want everyone to see you last. That's where I want your location to be. Secondly, he gives us a location. If anyone would be first, he must be servant of all. Again, you hear just how elementary this is? Servant of all. Well, does that leave out the people I really don't like? Servant of all. I mean, just... All. 
Jesus uses this word. Servant is the word uh, that we get for deacon. It's the table waiter. And so it's like Christ is coming in and saying, "Okay, let me see if I can help you guys. Let's walk into the finest restaurant. And you see the owner. That that's not the great one here. Do you see the the people that are famous and they're they're dining at the the head table? That's not the great one here. I I want to show you who's great. And this is the model I want you to have. You see the busboy? Now, he's great. And that's exactly what I want you to look like when you're here on earth. You're going to be a servant to everybody who walks through the door. It doesn't matter what they look like. So our location has to be a servant and it has to be last. If you live like I did in Lawton, Oklahoma in the 1970s and you went to Woodland Hills Elementary School, you would have had a great opportunity to learn about the 1889 land run. And the land run back then was uh, people would line up with their horses and carriages. You may have seen something about this. And the government sort of opened up all this land and you would line up and you'd run out with a stake and you'd stake, put your stake in a piece of land and this would be your home and you'd have to build a home there and, and develop the land. Well, to learn about this when you're in fifth and sixth grade, you would line up behind the school and all the fifth and sixth graders would line up there. They'd have a stake in their hand. And then when the whistle blew, you'd run out, you'd take your stake and you'd plant it on the prime piece of playground. I mean, whichever piece you thought was the best spot, you got that spot. And this, let me tell you, this exercise really brought out the best in 11 and 12 year olds. <laughs> the, the character that got developed at this moment was really outstanding, including my own. I realized I wasn't that bright as a fifth or sixth grader, but I realized I wasn't the fastest guy in the class. And so I was not going to, by speed, get the prime piece of real estate out on the playground. And so I determined to line up near the fast guys and I could bump them around and I could knock them over. And so as they're falling down, I could run ahead and get the prime piece of real estate. And I would run out there and I would put my stake in the place that I wanted to say, this is mine. I'm the king of this piece of land. And you and I live in a culture that's like a land rush. We, we get out these doors and we're racing around to say, no, this is mine. And we're, we're planting our stakes in places to say, this is what I own. This is where I rule. This is where everybody comes to me and I get to decide. And that might be with my time or that might be with my money. And you've just planted a stake in your bank account and say, I get to decide here. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm redefining that. I get to decide. I get everything. Do you understand that, he's saying? And I'm afraid we've planted our stakes in places and say, well, I just don't serve. I don't serve here. This is not a place that I'm last. I wonder how irritated you get when somebody cuts you off in traffic. I wonder how irritated you get when you go to the grocery store and there's only one cash register open. And you're like the sixth or seventh person in line. And you do this. 
Anybody else here? I mean, come on. Can't they open up just one more? Because I don't really want to be sixth or seventh. I want to be like first or second in line. Do you race around town and when you come up to the light, you say, well, this is a shorter line. And you kind of zip up to make sure you get the best spot. Is it ingrained in you that deeply that you have to be out front and first? And I wonder if Christ came into a conversation in our head and he said, hey, what are you thinking about? That you, you just fall silent because of the pettiness of how you live your life. You, you gotta be out there first. And when He comes in, when the glory of the risen Lord drops into your life and says, Hey, what are you talking about? You realize, gosh, the things I'm consumed by, the places I've driven my stake down, they're air, they, they don't mean anything. Well, Christ just couldn't have been any more clear about being Last, if you want to be first, about being a servant of all. And so he defines, he, he gives an illustration, he gives a definition and then he gives an illustration. Verse 36 and 37. He puts a child not only in his arms, but in his midst. And John Piper says this about the illustration. He asks the question, why does... Why does Jesus use children in this illustration? Piper responds, the answer is that there's no political payback in serving children. They can't vote. They don't give you speeches about how great your is your helpfulness. In fact, they pretty much take for granted that you will take care of them. They don't make a big deal out of the fact that you, you pour your life out for them. And so children prove more clearly than any other kind of people whether you're truly great or not, whether you live to serve or live to be praised. I've said this before, you notice with a child, you give something away to a child. You're in the checkout line and you say, I'll buy for you a pack of M&Ms. And you hand the child a pack of M&Ms and then you ask the child, hey, could I have one? And what does the child say? It's mine! I just bought it for you. And you're already claiming it's yours. And Jesus is saying, serve those people. Serve the people that when you give away your wealth, whether it's money or time or energy, and they take it and then make it their own, those are the people I'd like for you to serve. You see, that's not a difficult theological concept. But that's a very difficult way to live. But Christ is saying, those are the great ones. That's what the whole world is waiting to see. People that live their lives like that. I think it's important just to qualify here when Jesus gives this illustration. When we serve, it has to be in his name. See that? Verse 37 must be done in my name. We're supposed to serve with a particular motivation. And the reason is, is because the motivation is for the exaltation of God alone. Plenty of people, plenty of people could run out of these doors and serve for their own exaltation. Plenty of people could run out the door and serve for the exaltation of children. 
oh, children, they're so worthwhile and I'm exalting them. You might do it at the exhortation of your pastor. But there's only one pure motivation when you go out and serve, and that's in the name for the glory of Christ, not for anybody else's glory, mine or yours or anyone else's. Okay, Um, I want you to think about greatness. I want you to understand the definition of greatness. I want you to see the illustration We're we're serving all kinds of people and Christ particularly picks out the person that when you serve them, they actually take your service as if they deserved it and they claim it for themselves. He's asking you to serve the very hardest kinds of people. And I want to ask this question, well, how do I do that? I hear that, but how is it I'm empowered to do that? And I first titled this last point, uh, Greatness Demonstrated. But I don't think that's big enough. I think it has to be greatness empowered. I can't just follow a model. I have to be empowered in a unique way, and Christ does that. The only way we can live our lives with this unselfish motive for the exaltation of Christ, I believe the only possible way to live this way is to truly believe that all of your needs are already met. That you don't have any need. So that you are free to totally give yourself away. If you have any need, if you have anything that must happen, then you're going to have to have that fulfilled in some way. But if Christ has fulfilled all of your needs, you can go out and serve. You see, if you're fully satisfied with what Christ has given you, there's nothing that the world is going to give you that's going to fill any emptiness. He's filled it already. And so you have no need for what the world has to offer in greatness because you have it in Christ. And this is the point in verse 31 and 32 that the disciples just haven't grasped yet. He keeps talking about his death and resurrection, but they just don't have their minds around it. And they will, as we march through the book, we'll see it. But but they're still focused on themselves. They still have an internal hunger that Christ hasn't satisfied for them yet. And so they're grasping at things in the world. When Jesus says at the cross when he's dying, he says these words, it is finished. And that means lots of things. But one of the things is that everything has been completed in me. I have satisfied a debt that no one could possibly pay. And I have accomplished everything. And now because of that accomplishment, the burden of my sin is lifted because of Christ. And, and that's not all. 
He just isn't just forgiving us. He's taking something away and he's giving us something. And Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 1.18. It's the glorious riches of Christ. He's taking off a burden and then he's infusing into us this wealth, this rich, these riches that can't possibly be measured. And so when he says it is finished, you and I now can boldly walk into the presence of Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. I wonder if you if you know. Not just mentally, I I know it. It's it's inside, Paul. I know I believe. I daily reflect on and, and I put in front of my eyes the inexhaustible, the infinite, unlimited, unending, unrestricted, bottomless, boundless, ceaseless, immeasurable, inestimable and incomparable glorious wealth of God. Do you regularly have that out in front? Is that all that you need? Because when that's all that you need, then you can freely give yourself away to absolutely everyone, even to your own death, because he satisfied absolutely everything in his death and his resurrection. God has chosen us in him before the foundations of the world. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are co-heirs with Christ, who is the creator of all things. And when we see Christ on the cross and we understand he's satisfied every emptiness. Whatever that emptiness is in your life. I'm empty because of the relationship I had with my parents. I'm empty in my current relationship with my husband or wife. I'm empty because I don't have a husband or wife. I'm empty in my relationships because of my kids or the fact that I don't have kids. I'm empty because of my job and it doesn't seem fulfilling. I'm empty because I don't have enough wealth. I'm empty for a thousand other reasons. Jesus Christ has come into that emptiness and He's displaced all that with the glory of His riches. That are incalculable. They're, they're ceaseless. They're unbounded. And, and we have to keep that in mind as we go forward to serve as Christ would want us to serve. You see, if we don't have that in mind, we're going to be satisfied with something far less. And I, I don't think you'll truly be satisfied. But if Christ isn't that satisfaction, you're going to go out into the world and you're going to try to grasp on to first place. You're going to run your stake into something and say, this has got to be satisfying. And Jesus is saying, it's not satisfying. You learn to be completely satisfied in Christ when you're a servant to all. When you take last place. So my question is, has the real weight, the realness of God's glory dropped down into your life? And is it displacing all of your old ideas? All of your ideas about possession, all of your ideas about money. Has he quaked in your life that now things are new? Or are you just calling yourselves a Christian, but you're really not a disciple? 
Let's pray together. Lord, you came to make disciples. You call us to make disciples. You call us to be disciples. And most of us probably could repeat Mark 935 from memory in some form or fashion. Oh, yeah, it's the part where the first and the last and be servant of all. But, Lord, I just pray. I pray for these people, these 200 people, if they walked out into their world, really walking in this way, the impact they could have would be incredible. Lord, protect us from even doing that for our own glory. We're so bent in on ourselves, we might go and serve in the poorest place for self-exaltation. So we need to do it in your name. We need to understand that all of our needs are met in Christ. That, that nothing holds sway in our lives now, not even death. Lord, you have given us so much. And we would never be able to assume to repay that, even with our own life, but particularly in putting money into a basket. So I pray that no one here would put any money in that they would think somehow that obligates God to your agenda. But they would give out of, out of a grateful heart because of the tremendous promises that you have given to us as believers and disciples of Christ, our Savior. Amen.